You don't mind my saying you got a lot on your shoulders for a kid. The two of you, alone, and your girl, Amy, she's ripe. I bet there's a line of guys dying to pluck that. Your mom, too. You don't see it. Maybe you do, but she's putting it out. It's on you to look out for them. You up for that guy? I think I can manage. Good. Because there are a lot of bad people out there, Charlie. Everyone's got to look after his own business. Thanks for the beers. I'm Margo Mutter. I'm Bax Gall. I'm Zoe Tanel. And, and we're, we're out, out to, to get, get you. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. I'm your unreliable narrator. Bax, our sirens call. And together we're plumbing the depths of queer text and horror. Before we get going, I want to thank everybody for their patience while we've been on a little bit of a break and also send a shout out to our friends Adam and Zach at Battle for the Adam, a wonderful weekly X-Men podcast where they rank every X-Men story A to Z. Adam gave us a really sweet shout out and we want to thank him for that. And he was not alone in the X-Sphere. Our friend Connor Goldsmith at Cerebro, who hosts another wonderful podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior, which actually brought all three of us together. Uh, Connor gave us a lovely shout out. And uh, like Valentine said, you know, comics and horror go hand in hand. And now here you are wearing a leather jacket. So if you're into what we do and you're not already a listener of these shows, you probably want to go ahead and get on that. But today we are here with the other half of Team Blade Maidens, the cool as fuck queer punk fantasy comic, who alongside Valentine M. Smith, the other co-creator and artist, is the co-writer and co-scripter Zoe Tanell. Hello, Zoe. Hi, hello. That's me. That's and you. I have no other connections to this podcast. <laughs> there were no political appointments made on this episode. Are we just gonna get it out get it out of the gate? Like <laughs> the fa- I'm dating Bex. Bex and I are date. That's the whole thing. I was gonna say something that you would have really hated, so I I won't say it. I was gonna be like, in this scenario, the Tom Wams begins to my chivalry. <laughs> Oh, fuck you. <laughs> wow, that's the meanest thing you've ever said to me. And now we've got the energy for the room. <laughs> oh, no. If you're listening to this as it releases, you can check out the whole story at blademaidens.com. Or if you're catching this down the line, you can pick up your very own printed collection of Blade Maidens from Dark Horse Comics just announced. Very excited about that. How are you feeling on that, Zoe? I still feel surreal. It's it's a deal that's been in the works for a while. We were talking with Connor, our editor over at Dark Horse, who they're incredible, cannot sink their praises enough, for about a year before we announced. And it's surreal to be able to say Dark Horse has been very gracious in letting us announce early. 
because we are still a weekly webcomic, one page a week, and the volume is going to cover our first six stories, along with a selection of like shorts and supplemental text that I write beneath each page. It's all like in-universe like books and journal entries and stuff. When you told me off air that you were able to include some of the supplementals, I thought that was, that's wonderful. It's a fun way to slip world building mm-hmm. into it without clogging the actual comic. But yeah, they, they let us announce very early. We're still, we're about, as of this recording, we're about maybe like two thirds of the way through story three. So with one page a week, you can kind of do math and it's going to be a little bit before the trade is out. So we don't have like a release date or anything. But at some point in the future, you will be able to hold a nice, fancy Dark Horse Comics trade of Blade Maidens Volume 1. Incredible. Congratulations to you. Congratulations to Valentine. I was just so hyped when I first heard that. And uh, it's just really cool to see happen. And now you are here with us today. Yeah. And we are going to be talking about the remake to Fright Night in 2011 by Craig Gillespie. And before we get into it, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship with this film or horror in general. I know you're not a deep horror person. Yeah. So that's always an interesting experience I, to bring. Yeah, I'm definitely the nepotism hire <laughs> as far as guests on this no. podcast. Um, because I'm not a horror person. I get I get scared real bad. I gave myself two black eyes watching a horror movie once. What? I was in the movie theater <laughs> watching The Strangers. And this is before I wore glasses. And I had my little knees tucked up against my chest and my arms wrapped around my knees. And um, there's a big jump scare scene where like someone's hiding in the pantry and they're like watching through the slats of the pantry. And like one of the killers comes in, looks around and then leaves. It's like, okay. And then slams up against the door and it's a huge jump scare. And I went and jumped and uh, need myself in both of my eyes incredible simply incredible yeah. uh so that's the level we're working with here i run into a lot of glass doors i'm gonna level with you this bitch is clumsy <laughs> i also jump very easily so i feel you on that i i'm the opposite i love to make other people jump because i'm a terrible demon yeah no shit <laughs> i i tell a story all the time i was with my friend on a tour of some catacombs in edinburgh and they were telling spooky little ghost stories and I was standing just behind her and just blew in the back of her neck until she screamed. <laughs> it was great. As I said before, you were constantly inspiring. <laughs> so then how did you come to Fright Night? You know, it is a, a bit more uh, toned down in terms of palatable films. So horror is not like straight horror. Like, I'll watch it. I've watched plenty of horror movies. I just am traumatized afterwards. Horror comedy, however, is one of my favorite genres. I adore horror comedy. Do you have a favorite? Uh, Is it Fright Night? (laughs) No, it's not Fright Night. It's probably Evil Dead 2 Mm. would be my go-to. I also, I I don't think it's horror, like it's, it's, trading in horror tropes but i don't think it ever actually gets scary but i'm a very big fan of tucker and dale versus Eve oh, yeah. um, as well like delightful movie yeah. but and also ready or not and like there's oh, a bunch ready that or are not. just so good ready or not was almost my pick for this show there's still time um <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah uh so 2011 um, was a different time. It really was. <laughs> and I mostly saw this, if I remember right, for David Tennant, because this is this is when I got into Doctor Who in a big way. So I was like, 
ooh, David Tennant, that's fun, like, cool. Well, it's supposed to be a breakout role for him into American yeah, and audiences, it, and it didn't really and hit. And it was not, ooh, no. which is a shame, because he's fucking great in this movie. That was um, brilliant. But, yeah, I, I just saw it because I was like, well, I like vampires. I've always liked vampires. I've got a big old vampire lady tattooed on my thigh. And I was like, okay, vampires, Colin Farrell's good. David Tennant's good. Anton Yelkin was fun in Star Trek. So, sure, why not? And Anton Yelkin, R.I.P. Yeah, God bless. Truly. Yeah. But yeah, so I just figured I'd go see it on whim and really liked it and was surprised at how little response there was to it. So like, this is a fun movie. Like, this is well made. Mm -hmm. It's got good bones. Like, there's actually like some social commentary in here that's interesting. It is perhaps the most like early 2010s movie (laughs) ever made. And if you think about when it came out, so it came out in 2011, like you said, and it's not that the market had been oversaturated with remakes, but it was, there was a lot coming out. I mean, Scream 4 was a few months before this. And it's also like the Shadow of Twilight was still yeah, there. Like, when did right. the last Twilights come out? 2011 and 2012, so it's right in that, like, and middle crux of it. Because the last two were a two-parter for the one book. I didn't mean to out myself as having that much Twilight knowledge, but here we are. Just right off the cuff. They had been coming off the era of Twilight, the books mm-hmm. and the movies and True yeah. Blood. Yep. Oh, I, I, God, I love True Blood so much. True Blood is the messiest, schlockiest shit it's in the world. It's terrible. I love, I love it. it. Ugh. True Blood was 2008 to 2014. Yeah. I know, my vampire media. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That had kind of created this more melodramatic Mm -hmm. romantic sentiment and nostalgia with the vampire Mm -hmm. and so this one really turned it right against itself again it went back to a very carnal predatory vision of the vampire which i i thought was really fun this is one of my favorite interpretations of a modern vampire Mm -hmm. like in both in performance because colin farrell colin farrell can be so fucking charismatic and charming like we just recently rewatched the batman (sighs) And I, that man became an, uh, okay, first off, fat suit is bad. They shouldn't have had him in a fat suit. Let's just get that out of the way. For sure. But, but besides that, that man became an honorary Italian um, (laughs) with that role. Um, Because like, he was the funniest part of that whole movie. Like he's consistently like in, in Bruges, like he's this absolute mess. Oh, in Bruges. What a movie. So like, I was like, oh, is he going to be like, you know, the charismatic, and he is charismatic, but not in a way that makes you go like, oh, he's fun in a way that's like, oh God, he's a creep. Fuck. Yeah. Right. Like instead of Chris Sarandon's Jerry, which is the suave gentleman where it's a natural part of him instead with Colin Farrell, it's a tool in his kit that he uses because he is a serial killer. Like Without making light of the terrible things this actual human has done in actual real life, Jerry the mm-hmm. Vampire is the Andrew Tate of vampires. Oh, God. Mm. I hated that. I wish you hadn't yeah. said that. Am I wrong, though? No. I mean, he's yeah. also got, like, a little bit of a, like, a Ted Bundy vibe, right? Oh, Where yeah. it's like, yes. you're yeah. inexplicably drawn to this man who, for all intents and purposes, there is no reason for you to be... Mm-hmm. Except the yep. fact that he's absolutely fucking awful, you know? I feel like it's kind of a, a reckoning with the fact that when the original movie was made in the 80s, the danger next door is where, like, communists and queers. And then the danger next door after, like, the 2000s are like, oh, no, it's absolutely, like, 
cops yep. and yeah. white men and just yep. the slew of serial killers. And like talking about like the era change, the way it uses the realities of like early 2010s, like the housing crash. Mm-hmm. Right. Like is so like the idea of turning those neighborhoods full of abandoned houses in the suburbs into like hunting grounds for a vampire is so fucking clever. It makes me so angry. It's a very cool representation like in Dracula where the tools of modernity mm-hmm. and the tools of the changing times are what allow him to take hold. So not to, we, we cannot go into a subprime mortgage <laughs> no. crisis talk. However, this film was released in 2011. It takes place in 2010 based off mm-hmm. clues in the movies, which is two years after the 2008 financial recession. And there were a lot of foreclosures, but Las Vegas led the nation in foreclosures around that time too. So when Jerry moves in, he's using the failures of capitalism and like cost of that around him mm-hmm. to prey yep. on other people. That's like the thing where I I feel like this movie gets dismissed as just uh, as a remake, whatever. When like I think that this movie has like it's yeah it's goofy and like silly and also like has some extreme 2010s homophobia repressed like homo eroticism mm. like it's got a lot of it in there to the bone oh yeah but the like. I think it's got more going on than people give it credit for. Yeah, I would agree to that. Because one thing we talked about in our first episode is, you brought this up, Bex, about the localization of horror. And horror is a very mimetic thing. It's always in communication and exchange with the communities come from, and also itself. So I feel like Fright Night 2011 is very much in play with its 1985 counterpart in that it flips the script on life in suburban America. If you're going to do a remake, that has to be like one of your core tenets. You have to bring something new to the one, the film that you're remaking and also have like a dialogue opened up with it. I think a lot of like reboots and even soft reboots that are for all intents and purposes still sequels quite often try to capture the lightning in a bottle feel of a... a very good horror movie without actually looking at why they were good in the first place. It sounds like dull work, unless you're me and a nerd about it, but like sitting and deconstructing what makes it work and why is, I think, pretty much essential to having a remake that's going to work because otherwise you'll just get derided as having never watched the original. For more on this, see future episode on Scream 2. That's the one! (laughs) That's the one. Boy. And also Scream 3 and 4 and 5 and also 6. <laughs> and by that point, probably Scream 7. Oh, I hope so. But yeah, for horror has to be in a relationship and in a dialogue with its original material, with the times it's in. So this is set after the housing crisis. Just speaking from personal experience, like it being 2010, I, for listeners, um, I did not come out in transition until I was 28. So when it was 2010, I was a poor little closeted person who thought they were a dude graduating from high school in 2010. So I'm so old. So uh, mm. the 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 whole vibe going on in this movie is just like, oh yeah, no, it was it was like this. Yep, this is how all the like you know what are you gay? You gay? Like you know don't be gay and like. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, no, no. That checks out. Yeah. It's funny you say that yeah. because when I think about Charlie in this movie, yeah. 
his affectation is that of like the laid back Californian in the early 2010s, yep. but that kid is wound so tight. Oh, he's ready to pop. He's ready to explode. Yeah. The scene where he's just like whittling the steak in his room. Ooh, that, that kid's, ooh, he's about to, he's going to die of a heart attack when he's like 38. Or he's going to have some really important realizations about himself. Let's hope the latter end up in a better yeah. place. Well, in the original, like I can definitely say, like Charlie Brewster's gay. Yeah. Um. Yes. But the Charlie of Anton Yelchin is operating in a more cis hetero narrative in his public life. And I, I think, I think a fun wrinkle to the whole, like, to Charlie's sexuality is Peter's sexuality because david tennant is playing a pansexual disaster in this movie legendary in the best way david yeah. tennant on some level is always playing a sort of bisexual yeah. pansexual disaster who walks as if his knees have never met each other in their life and i love that for him because it's it's very explicit in this movie because like he he's like all like yes. when charlie saves the day he's like kissing him and like hugging close and like he says things that are clearly a straight person would not say these things things but he's also very sexist towards ginger which uh i'm like ah well, everything's driven by fear right like his whole character oh, yeah, is yeah. driven by fear to the point that he yeah. creates a tomb for himself yeah in a las vegas hotel no matter how pretty and shiny it is mm -hmm. and he presents this personality of toxic masculinity and misogyny uh because yeah. he thinks that might keep him safe he also you're still practicing that yeah, uh, so he's like a real shit, but he's such a fun little shit. Can I talk about my personal history with Chris Angel <laughs> real quick? So I hate Chris Angel with all of my uh, all of my being, but no, not not because of anything he personally did. Although like all of his vibes are rancid, the mind freak upsets me. But because my core memory of Chris Angel is my sister and I were in the same room, and she had Chris Angel on the TV, and he was like doing some fucking like tightrope walk where it looked like he was floating or something between the like, I forget and my sister went like wow can't believe like you know how does he do it and I go oh it's like a, you know it's an illusionist trick and she's like no it's magic and I went what wait what and she's like yeah he's magic <laughs> elaborate yeah, he can, on yeah, that he's please magic. he can do magic I'm like like a wizard and uh she was like yeah he's magic he's a magician and uh this escalated to the point where uh we were fist fighting each other <laughs> giving the definition of necromancer over a couple of right hooks yep um and so now whenever i see chris angel i uh am i'm filled with the feeling of getting socked in the face it's gotta be a little conflicting <laughs> it's well so David Tennant's, like, very clear send-up of Chris Angel in this movie is delightful for me. Yeah. Because I'm just like, ooh, baby, yeah, roast him, roast him. <laughs> you didn't do magic at all. Yeah. That's not even your real beard. Her name's Ginger. <laughs> Her name is Ginger. I love that he um, he has real facial hair, but he, he pads it with fake facial hair. That's such a good gag. It's so funny. It's just because it takes so yep. long for it to finally finish, right? He takes off yep. the leather, then he takes off the wig, then he takes off it's, mutton chops and spears. Everything with his character is like perfect. Like no notes, absolutely none. It's yeah. interesting too. I guess maybe we should go ahead and give a quick roundabout on the plot for Fright Night. Probably should, yeah. <laughs> so basically, long story short on both of them is that there's a kid 
His name is Charlie Brewster. Somebody moves in next door. His name is Jerry. And he comes to believe that his neighbor is a vampire. And then alongside Amy, his girlfriend, and his friend Ed, they try to take out the vampire. Different plot beats happen overall in both of them, but we're going to stick to 2011 today. Um, yeah, the... Uh, also like we should probably go over the cast of this movie because like retroactively it's kind of insane this is such a stacked film that's so yes it really is even the the score yeah yeah uh ramin jualde so is so good you know and they've gone on to score Uh, game Game of thrones Thrones, westworld all of the like iconic music except for like the main theme from game of thrones i believe I don't know how you don't start this film and when his Welcome to Fright Night kicks in over the DreamWorks credits that you aren't just like, in. let's go. The But yeah, we got Anton Yelkin as Charlie. The much better Charlie, in my opinion. Yeah, Imogen Poots as Amy. She's great. Um, it's the best name in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. We have Tony Collette. Tony, Tony Collette. fucking Collette. Tony oh. Collette. Ugh, I love her. Um, David Tennant, obviously, as Peter Vincent, and Colin Farrell as um, Jerry. Uh, yeah, we've also got Dave Franco. Dave Franco. Yeah. Early Dave Franco. Like this Dave is, Franco is just this here. This is before he like took off. I feel like the first movie where Dave Franco like became like Dave Franco was uh, 21 Jump Street. That's the one where yes. he, yeah. Christopher Mintz Plus and Chris Sarandon shows up. Yeah, he makes a little cameo. It's cute. It is cute. He's such a cheerleader for this film. Yeah. And, you know, the original, obviously, more so because he's in it. Yeah. But <laughs> Colin Farrell said that meeting him was just a delight. Aww. That's very sweet. And just because I want to give a shout out, like, the actress is not particularly, like, prolific. I just love the character and she got such a poor raw deal. I want to shout out uh, Emily Montague as Doris. <laughs> Poor Doris. Yeah. Oh, Doris. You deserve better. You deserve so much better, Queen. Emily Montague, a New Jersey native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Funny how those things work out. And Sandra Vagara. Yes. Oh, as Ginger. As yeah. Ginger. Oh. Yeah, gotta give it up for Ginger. All the women in this film do deserve Truly. better. Yeah. Every single one. This movie doesn't treat its women great, which is both like, you know, you can't you you can't really excuse it, but also it is extremely of the era to not treat its yeah. women great. Mm, yeah. So yeah, it, it's an absolutely packed cast, and everybody does such a good yeah. job. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Marty Knoxon also wrote this before we start on this conversation oh. of Buffy and Angel Fame. I hate to admit it here, I am not the biggest Buffy head. Yeah, I was a big Buffy person, and then I rewatched it. And I was like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Joss Whedon fingerprints are everywhere <laughs> I... in that trough. I have possibly the worst experience with Buffy in that I have seen almost no Buffy, but I sure watched a ton of Angel. Uh, Oh! Well, the thing is, Angel was on TV at like 6 a.m. when I was getting ready for school. We used to just have to watch things when they were on. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah, Charmed and Angel were the go-to. Oh, but Charmed Um, was great. Yeah, Charmed was great. But also, uh, just for Bex, because I'm sure uh, they will enjoy this, Marty Noxon did write eight episodes of Sharp Objects, but also wrote, specifically for you, uh, two episodes of Glee. Excellent. What a well-rounded career that is. Yeah. (laughs) Glee is, in fact, a horror show, so that tracks. Uh, From everything Mm. you've subjected me to, yes, it is. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that you made me watch the fucking turkey lurkey thing. (laughs) I don't regret that. Uh, But it's it's really cool that they made this when they did because coming after the Great Recession was a weird time. You know, it plays to this idea that vampires do pop up a lot when you're talking about times of recession. You know, when Dracula was written, it was written during that period of the Long Depression in England. We got Bela Lugosi's in the 30s, Anne Rice in the 70s. would simply love to point out that England is still in a Long Depression. We, like, they simply never left and dragged us with them. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds an awful lot like England, doesn't it? Sure does. Me and Big David Tennant pro-independence, right? (laughs) Um, Even just, like narratively like the vampires are constantly in like moments of like like tragedy and like fucking how many vampire narratives are built around like the spanish flu or like <laughs> the yeah i know edward there's others too um, i said nothing like the you gave me a look <laughs> um but yeah it's usually like the big oh this is a moment like an era of tragedy this is an era and like this one is so recent and also like so kind of glossed over in terms of Mm -hmm. the actual impact it had on people seeing a movie utilize it as like oh no this was a profoundly fucked up time in Mm -hmm. america is delightful i think so quite frequently vampires occupy a space that in history is defined by a loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see them a lot in war movies, you see them a lot in like like that recessions, times of financial decline, because there has to be a space that something once occupied and has now been lost that the vampire then uses to move in. It's an opportunity attack of, hey, you needed this thing and you no longer have it, and now you've left the door open and invited me in. Like, it is quite literally leaving the door open to one of your greatest predators. Um, We talked about it a little bit with Dracula, and that you move away from, in a sense, you move away from traditional beliefs and into modernity, and that loss of belief leaves you open to the monsters coming back. Right. You move into a space where, after a financial crash, all these homes are empty, and suddenly there's an affable neighbour next door that's everyone's best friend. It's inviting your own demise in, if you will. It's, I, th- I think it's also a clever use of, like, Las Vegas, both from the, like, the fact that it led the country in, like, foreclosures, but also as a hunting ground because people who work nights or, like, work the graveyard and thus are up at five in the morning are super normalized over there because, yeah. like, everything runs on the strip. Mm-hmm. So having him, like, when the cops show up, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I work nights, so that's just why I'm up. It's fine. And the cops are all, like, no, the cops suck. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're fucking a real good dude, huh? Ugh. Oh, yeah, you bet she's screaming. Like, ugh. ugh. Disgusting. It's one of those, like, it's such a simple idea of, like, oh, yeah, yeah, Vegas never sleeps, therefore it's a perfect hunting ground for vampires. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, And portraying Jerry in this incarnation as this dominant of the species, yep. you know, this this predatory animal. Pack leader, like, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, you can see it because it becomes such a great killing yeah. ground. You go in, there's a scene where you see him have all the different outfits from like EMS yep. and the army and cops and everything else. You know what? It's Jerry's Vegas vacation is what this is. The man moves into this almost empty cul-de-sac and then just proceeds to have a buffet. Yeah, the being up at all hours of the morning thing is also why I think every high school vampire story should be in, like, college or university. Because I'm like, 
anyone I went to university could be up at five in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, that seems right. Much better cover. Oh, you're you're wearing Edwardian clothes to class? Sure. Yeah, whatever. I don't care. You don't care. <laughs> Are you a theater kid? You're probably a theater kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that the vast majority of high school narratives would be improved. Well, not vast majority, but like a majority of them would be improved if they just made them college age. Stop, like, stop, stop making horny... Stop it. You, you can just do college. It's fine. Stop it. It's fine. You can do college. The market's there. Yeah. It's fine. But I think also like in what Charlie's mom, uh, Tony Clett in this movie, mm-hmm. says about how she always has so many for sale signs in her car because Las Vegas is transient. There's people leave and come as quickly as anything. Yeah. So the idea of someone appearing and then disappearing, sure. Maybe they moved out. Maybe this happened. Maybe the next yep. thing. Nobody asks questions because it's the nature of the city. And I think that's a really interesting way to tie your story so fundamentally to a location that it couldn't really be set anywhere else. I saw her pull those Chekhov's real estate yep. sign. Yes. Real estate. <laughs> oh, ho, ho. But I love Tony Collette in this movie. She's so good. And one of the things that it does differently from its source material is that it gives Amy and Tony Collette both a lot more agency and character. Tony Collette is incredible in this film and she gets her third act curse and she gets her kill. Yes. But all these things together make it what Evil Ed, mm-hmm. Christopher Mintz Platt said, mm-hmm. the perfect cover story. Yeah. And so he's coming at the perfect time. He's found the perfect kind of people to prey on. He starts the movie with that great kill scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, Adam, like, re- reaching for that gun under the bed. Like, oh. Yeah. Getting the keys. When yeah. the lock falls on the ground, it's it's over. Yeah, so good. And it's interesting that they pose it as Ed having to convince Charlie rather than the other way around. Yeah. The resistance to get dragged into the childish things that he views Ed and his friendship and the experimentation that clearly went on there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it kind of speaks towards the kind of ironic detachment and cynicism that was really rising in that time. Extremely so. And, you know, now we're staring down this world and this recession. <gasps> hey, probably fine. Uh, yeah, the energy, it, it's very funny, like the energy that Ed has when he's like making his pitch vampires is also very interesting to think of in the context of 2011 because it has the same exact vibe as like all of those weirdos who are like zombie apocalypse is gonna happen zombie mm-hmm. apocalypse. Like, you read you read world war z it all could happen it's so real two years yeah and it's just i could see why charlie would be like dude come on like, it's got this vaguely incel and mm-hmm. QAnon vibe because he's yeah. a very misogynistic yes. character He's always talking shit about women. He has such a poor opinion of them. Yep. And to me, he seems like, you know, in the first one, he is definitely gay. But it definitely seems like he has either repressed that in this one or he is someone who is really struggling with his place, like all the characters in the film. I lean towards repression specifically because of the scene where Jerry turns him. Mm. Uh, which is the most homoerotic thing in this entire mm-hmm. film. Like the fucking blood baptism in the pool, like cradling yes. him close. Like it as 
as Ed like gives into it, like stops fighting. Yeah, the force coercion. Yeah. And that's where we I think it's there, yeah. it might be a little earlier, that we learn that the smell of fear and the scent of fear is intoxicating to these vampires. Yep. So mm-hmm. it's definitely got a very erotically charged mm-hmm. feel to it as well, because this is the first time that we're seeing Jerry really indulge in himself in that way on screen. This is the first and last time I would ever like to describe um a scene featuring Christopher class as erotically charged i do <laughs> want to have that on the record just to make it clear for really everyone. Noted. No- nothing nothing against that man i have no idea if he's like le- i just personally do not want to do that again in my life <laughs> we are not mclovin and no. i tell you another interesting turn on the setting that i really like was when charlie doesn't really believe that and on his way back, he gets knocked over by his bully, Mark, and flees into the pool, which is where he gets caught by Colin Farrell. And in their little cat and mouse game, Ed breaks the glass door mm-hmm. and walks into a home. And it's so neat to see them address this because he's like, you can't come in. Yes. You have no invitation. Yep. And then he steps right through the threshold because when the house is abandoned, you don't need an invitation. Because nobody occupies it. It's good. And I like Jerry's like, you did do your research, like clever. You didn't do quite enough though. Yeah. Oopsie. Mm-hmm. RIP to Ed, but I would simply have not fallen for that because I know my vampire lore and I'm therefore built different. Oh yeah. <laughs> Keep it moving. You need distance Just go. there. I you gotta go. I do not see a scenario where you are being chased by a vampire and your response is not go, yep, make me a vampire, baby. Um, when it's a man. Mm. True. Oh, that's fair. Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Can you imagine having to tell people who bitch you? I know. It was a guy named Jerry. Yeah. Like, oh, it was a terrible vampire. Terrible name. name. Terrible name. Do you have a sister? You or know? like, do you have like like someone below you? Someone you turned? But yeah, Ed going missing mm. gives Charlie the impetus into the story. And we get a nice Twin Peaks mm-hmm. missing classmate scene yeah. that spurs his little detective work on. And fr- like from there, he is just... A neurotic mess. <laughs> yeah, he's a neurotic mess. Yeah. He pushes people away, which is what he does mm. to Amy. And mm-hmm. it's also pushing her out of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just being disrespectful. Yeah. Shut- it's so funny because you watch him shut down his mom too. He's like, mom, I can't answer a million questions. Like, how about one? Yeah. Just answer the one. Maybe- And we'll start from there. Maybe try responding to one question. Who's to say? And this is when he sees Jerry bring door into the house yeah doris who is a showgirl neighbor Mm -hmm. go-go dancer go-go dancer you're right and he goes through a a very legitimately tense scene of him seeking around jerry's house yeah and like discovering his little like murder closet where he keeps his victims at presumably as they are turning or like until there's no more blood left for him to either kill them or turn them. His house is so cool because it really is. It, it is a nest. Yes. Yeah. It really is because it is bare bones. There's nothing that makes it a home. You know, when they do a shot in the garage, it's like eight gas cans stacked around each other. Yeah. But even before Charlie's sneaking around in his house, there's that scene where he comes over to get like the sex pack. Oh, the beer, the beer. Oh, my God. so good. And he's like, I don't know how we move past. Pressing against the threshold of the house, like desperate to come in. It's also when he's saying the really creepy stuff about how hard Charlie's life must be taking care of two women who are so strongly sexual. And Charlie's like, I don't, I don't like this. Please stop. And then he drops Uh, the beer. One of my one of my favorite moments is when he does like the jump scare, like hi to, to Charlie. But he does it in a way he goes, hey, guy. 
And it's just so fucking funny to me. Well, it's an act. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. So th- this He's is trying to bro it out. Act. He's trying to bro it out with Charlie and failing miserably. Oh, yeah. Right? Because yeah. when you see him in the first introduction with Mrs. Brewster and Amy yeah. and Charlie, he tries to be affable, but he's, you know, he's not great at it. You can tell. Mm-hmm. And then when he kills Ed, you see that he really does like to yuck it up, mm-hmm. right? Like he loves to talk. He loves yep. the sound of his own voice. Cold He's boy. into the game. He sure does. And then when he tries to put on a normal communication to get closer to Charlie, you get, hey, guy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the scene where Charlie like breaks, like drops the beer bottle, it breaks and Jerry's like, oh, let me help clean that up. And, he, and he's just like, no, 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 no. Another thing about that that's really interesting is so this was a film that was shot in 3D. It pretty much not being seen in 3D. There's a few shots where you're like, oh, yeah, this that's was a 3D. Right. The truck yeah. scene is. Yeah. But for the rest of the film, because they, I believe they only shot with these cameras. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was a, a thing for Craig Gillespie when he wanted to take this over. It was to do that. And it gives you a depth in the room with the island on that kitchen mm-hmm. table and the door frame mm-hmm. that is really nice the same thing when he enters into the abandoned house through the threshold like you get that feeling of space between them that i think is really interesting and charged yeah but yeah we after that scene charlie goes in um and the the tragic fate of doris <sighs> yeah he finds spare keys, oh, yeah. but not before he looks on his phone for an app called How to Pick Locks, which is just... Yeah, this is an incredibly mm. 2010 thing, because he app. first tries to pick yeah. the lock with an app until he finds the spare key and the fake rock. Yeah, but I just think that little detail of him trying to pick locks with an app is so funny yeah. to me. Yeah, because like I here's the thing. It's very funny to have like, oh, there's an app for that. And now if he had pulled up YouTube and searched how to pick lock, then I'd be like, impeccable. No notes. Perfect. That is exactly yes. what I would do in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Gets into his house, gets into his office bedroom space, which is very occulty. Mm-hmm. You get like, a little shrine yep. and you can tell there's more going on. And he takes pictures of it all. Mm-hmm. Very funny because they do that night flash yeah. on it through the windows so it's very much the early technology there at play but then when jerry comes home he snuck in while he's away and when jerry comes home he has to hide where folks in the closet <laughs> sure does sure does he piles himself in there and what does that closet have a set of kill rooms yep which is so creepy where they all have keys in them except the one that's occupied mm-hmm. yep it's it's oh, true Doris. The, the kill rooms are the most like i think that's the most viscerally like gross and upsetting thing in this whole movie is that kill mm-hmm. hallway it's just like oh this is mm-hmm. this is so real this is so mundane and real in a way that is very gross yeah right if you told me just a guy named jerry did this i would fully believe yep. yeah i would believe that it was would like have an eight-part series yeah like that's a true crime documentary but yeah, he finds Doris in the room and she's like, you know, like she's alive, but clearly like has been bitten. There's blood. In a rough way. Yeah. Um, and uh, he like tries to get her out, has to go and hide before Jerry. And we get the really, when Doris becomes like the realest person in this movie. Mm-hmm. like the, the, Oh the my God. MVP, Good for her. When Jerry, yeah, Jerry is like feeding on her. He drags her out of the closet, is feeding on her in the hallway. And she looks over his shoulder to see Charlie just poking his eye. And she, with, like, the last strength in her body, holds up her finger to her lips and, like, shushes. And it's We're just, all doing it right uh, now. Charlie, like, like Doris, the, like, MVP. Love you, Doris. Mm-hmm. Good for her. 
hoping Doris and Ginger are in better places. Yeah, maybe together. But yeah. that whole scene where he comes back in is so creepy. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ugh. feeds on Doris. Let she's still alive at the end of it. Alive, throws her into a, her room. And then we know after the fact that Jerry knows Charlie is there at this point. He can smell him. Yeah, you get a couple of tense moments, but he basically lets them walk out and think. Yeah, and like Jerry is like watching him, like pretending like Charlie snuck around. There's also some fun shots of like Jerry walking with like a beer and he walks by a mirror and you just see the can of beer floating by. Yeah, I love that. I'm also a big fan that he's watching Real yeah. Housewives of New Jersey. Sure is. I also like the the implication with the apples that he's eating because he mm-hmm. is eating them. Yeah. And I like it when they have when like a vampire who can eat food. You can taste and do it it makes it more of like obviously he couldn't live off of apples, but it makes the hunt more of a like oh I do that for pleasure. Right. Mm-hmm. Looks like a lot of the time with vampires who can eat is a case of nothing will ever fill you the same way as blood. Nothing yeah. will ever satiate you the same way. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. this idea of, oh, I do this for pleasure. I mean, there's something very kinky about the desire for denial and that too. Where yep. it's like, mm-hmm. this is, I want to feel this to know what it feels even more when I finally take my prey. And because it's the only mm-hmm. thing that makes me feel full. It's so visceral but yeah the tragic fate of doris is they get outside and enough time has passed that like the early morning sun is up and the second they stepped out of the shadow of the house doris has clearly been turned into a vampire and just <sighs> like dust into flames oh yeah they turn so fast in this movie yeah and charlie is mm-hmm. fucked up and like jerry's just watching from the window like uh God bless her. He's laughing as yeah. well. Like and Because he's bored. Craig Gillespie imagined him being about 400 years old, mm-hmm. you know, kicking it in Versailles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's clearly in Vegas for something. He has desire. He's getting sloppier. Uh, oh, did you know who was the original back when they were like first putting this movie together in early 2008, who was originally earmarked for Jerry? It was Heath Ledger, wasn't it? They were going to have Heath Ledger. Heath yeah. Ledger. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Would have been a very different performance, but who, boy, that would have been a performance. Farrell read the script and was like, uh, Jerry feels like a little bit of a sexual predator. Maybe oh, yeah, can change some parts. Yeah, there really weren't a lot of updates to the script. Uh, it's also 2011 mm-hmm. Colin Farrell, like filming 2010 Colin Farrell is like, he has, he is just starting his, I am shifting from Hollywood leading man to like yeah. acclaimed character actor niche. Very good at it. They, mm-hmm. they tried so hard to make him a Hollywood leading man and like he was so fucked up on like substances at that time. And so this this is like early, like figuring out, oh, wait, no, I'm instead a very good character actor. He plays a soulless vampire so well. Yeah, yeah. So I get him like kind of being like, this feels icky because uh, he has he hasn't realized like, oh, no, I can play icky roles. Well, what's great about the way they set this up for him to be like quickly thrown in and start believing because they go to ed's house and they see the evidence that he's a vampire can't be seen in videos or reflections and it puts all the pressure forward to get as far with the premise as possible because like immediately after that it's when he makes the stakes amy comes over and jerry tries to come in the house 
Tony I, Collette pulls that great fucking moment. I love the Tony Collette mom of the year having all the like like Jerry for as bad at being human as Jerry is. He's making a convincing. He's like, yeah, no, your kid has been you know harassing me. Like we should talk this out. Can I come in? And like you know, if we don't, I'm gonna call the cops. Like it's that's all like something a human would actually do. Be like, I'd rather mm-hmm. talk this out, but if we don't, I am going to have to call the cops. And like having her trust her absolutely unhinged in this moment in time son and carving like, stakes yeah be like no you know what call the cops like ooh, mm, what a good oh i love a good i love a good horror movie mom who's like no 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 i'm not gonna be skeptical anymore i'm in what's great about tony collette's action there is they set off a completely different trajectory than yep. the back half of the original film because Jerry has done this thing practice time and time again. And so he heads straight for his garage, grabs a shovel, saw, and grabs a lighter and starts digging up the backyard and then pulls up the gas line, knocks some gas in the house and lights it on fire. Literally pushes them out of that suburban environment. Yep. Also, I like it when they remind you, oh yeah, vampires are fucked. Like they're scary, strong and everything. Cause like that bit where he's just shoveling, pulling up massive chunks of dirt and just hurling them with the shovel. And I'm like, oh yeah, don't, he bat, he like, don't fight him. Mm-hmm. He has the backhoe. Yeah. They all hit the bricks and drive off in that SUV. And this kills me every time. Jerry picks up Charlie's bike to follow them. But we established at the start of the movie that bike's broken as fuck, my guy. You're not getting anywhere on that. And he's just like, shit. Mm-hmm. And just starts like absolutely booking it after them, firing that bike at them. It's great. I love What's it. so cool about that is that uh-huh. he gets the bike to start because Charlie never gets it to start. Mm-hmm. So in like this show of dominance, he makes the bike work. Yeah. And it's only because it's gotten hit by the van that it doesn't. <laughs> you have this thing where the two male adult authority figures are jerry who is a predator and this violent misanthrope and then you have peter vincent who is the opposite right he is the little baby boy and his black nail polish and his big beard his his bottle of midori at all times oh my god he drinks so much midori it's you aren't midori is a mixture he just drinks it out the bottle i'm like i can't do this i I can defend you for many things david tennant but not that it's insane like yeah yeah midori is a liquor like you can't drink it straight no no normal human would do such a thing right it shows how insulated he is too oh yeah 100 percent. yes and so you have these two diametrically opposed kind of father figures. And then Charlie is a child of divorce, yep. too. And, like, that's the thing that Jerry talks to him about. It's like, oh, so, you, you mm-hmm. know, your mom didn't say the details, but your dad ran out on you. And later with Peter Vincent, they like, oh, so you just drop people when it's inconvenient? Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see him colliding with these two figures in this story and how the one that's actually proactive is trying to hunt you down and take your mm-hmm. peace and your comfort from you. But yeah, they they get into a car chase. It's it's pretty brutal. Yeah. And this is the one that was shot for 3D. Oh yeah, 100%. There's a ton of shit flying to the camera. Like especially like even when he throws the bike, like that yeah. is a 3D moment. That's like one of the money yeah. shots for the 3D where the bike comes through the back windshield yep. at Amy and the glass shatters everywhere and it's still revving around all through the back seat like a chainsaw. He gets in his truck, chases him down, um, causes a big messy accident. They hit him with a car like they think like he starts going more like bestial vampire mm-hmm. at that point after he's hit with a car. He starts to like have the fangs and like get gray yeah. and look like inhuman. He looks like a piranha. Yeah. Yeah. And then 
we get that like, he kills is that is that Chris Sarandon the the guy That's yeah Chris I Sarandon yeah. yeah who was the original Jerry yeah. in eighty five came in for a cameo with that yeah. basically when Jerry fucks up their car he rams right into the back of them and doesn't last very long from there nope sure doesn't then uh, we get the great moment of him being staked so good the way he goes from sneering alpha predator to like whimpering yeah. like wounded animal flailing trying to mm-hmm. just get away. I love that giant real estate sign and letting Tony mm-hmm. Collette have that moment yep. too was so cool. But they do have to get her back to the hospital. Yep. Because she, she did get pretty fucked up in yeah. two different car crashes. Not great for you. Yeah. And they end up spending the rest of the film, or at least Charlie does, driving yeah. in yep. that busted car. Pretty funny. Yeah. This is when like Peter Vincent actually kind of like, because Charlie earlier tried to interview him made like a phony press pass asked some questions and peter was just like oh you're fucking crazy he's like no 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 no, i got i got pictures and he's like i don't want to see the pictures ginger get security like blah 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 i love watching him snap there yeah because he doesn't like anything and safe for him in his home and then later when they're in the hospital is when Peter looks through the photos and sees the altar that the Jerry has. He goes, oh shit, no, uh-huh. it's a real, it's actual, it's for real vampires. Because in this film, they tie it to his family. The reason yes. that he is so obsessed with the occult is that Jerry ate his parents. Yep. He got away, whether that was through Jerry's intention or not. And then he went and learned all this stuff and started procuring all these artifacts. But was too scared to actually do anything about it. Yeah. And yeah, and like he recognizes the symbol as being specifically the vampire who killed his family. Yeah. But then we get the whole bit with them and his penthouse and then McLovin is invited up as a in disguise as a courier. He's using one of Jerry's yeah. suits to get in. Yeah. Uh, delivering the state gun. Yep. It's also just what a terrifying like penny drop moment where Peter's like, oh, like I get drunk and order things off eBay all the time. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then you see like this realization dawning as Charlie goes like, do you ever get deliveries at this time of night? And everyone visibly blanches as they're like, oh, fuck. We've just invited them in. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that he just calls Jerry in. Yep. You know, it, again, showing how they're working modern systems. Yeah. I love the Hall of Weapons segment where Amy yes. is, like, on the run from Jerry. The bit where she grabs the pistol, like, loads it up and shoots him, like, six times, and he just pulls one of the silver bullets out and goes, werewolves. I love yeah. that they give her that, too. Yeah, and then she grabs the goblet of holy water and splashes him in the face and says, That's for vampires. vampires. Mm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's so good. I, I love the implication that also werewolves are real in this universe. They also exist. Of course yeah. And that battle they have between Evil Ed and yeah. Charlie with the axe, you get into him kind of battling his shadow self or what he yeah. is is afraid of being seen as you know because he put all his childhood stuff away we also get the moment of peter immediately running to his panic room and when he seals the door it ends up chopping off ed's arm hate that yeah which still keeps continuing to move yep. uh, oh yeah and of course you know we cannot forget that the reason he gets in is because ginger opens the door you know mm-hmm. yep and ginger's dead 
R.I.P. Yeah. Mm, so sad. But yeah, then we get the dance club scene where Jerry's chasing after Amy and Charlie and Amy mm-hmm. gets separated and you get the inevitable seduction moment where like he grabs her and like smears his blood on her lips. It's so creepy. It and I knew we were going to get one of these. Yep. To be separated by a tequila night t-shirt contest. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, like so many couples. <laughs> yeah, she's under his sway. He bites her right in front. And there's that the the bit that is like maybe the most horrifying 2010s view on sexuality and like how women were used. Yeah, the bit where Charlie like is being stopped by a security guard. And he's no, no, no. She's like she's being attacked. She's being. It looks over and Jerry's biting her neck mm-hmm. and like feeding on her. And of course, you know she's in. She's under his thrall, so she's like quote-unquote enjoying it yeah and the guard goes oh looks like she's having a good time disgusting and see i thought you were gonna say because what jerry does is that jerry is a very michael myers oh yeah right he doesn't run he walks he will follow you he's like Mm -hmm. an endurance predator and when he gets amy he throws her over the shoulder and starts carrying her away as she's screaming and she's like please help yep stop him and i thought you were gonna talk about the guy who leans up from the crowd is like that's what I'm talking oh, about. That whole season is oh. so grim for Amy. Jail, Jail for all yeah, those it's, men. It, it sucks. It's one of those things where I'm like, I genuinely have no way of knowing if Craig Gillespie was like intending to like make a commentary here because I don't know enough about the man's politics or like his film. I think the only other movie of his I've seen is Odd Thomas, which does mm-hmm. nothing to add. Fun movie, does nothing to add to like that. But it's the most scathing indictment of, like, Mm -hmm. how women were viewed at the time. I feel like it is commentary because it was written by Marty Knox on it. So a lot of things in the script will be from From from, her perspective. Yeah, from her perspective rather than This man directed um, I, Tonya and Cruella. Oh, shit, I didn't know. Okay, then yeah. Um, Then yeah, absolutely intended, 100%. Certainly no with Itonia. I Tonya alone yeah. absolutely means like that man knows what he's doing when he's making these scenes. And you know, you can mm-hmm. feel that because the entire movie has a very specific tone to it. Yeah. It's much more emotional and dark, and the way that its humor comes out is in almost meta in in mm-hmm. its way. Like it will like have a rising crescendo in the music only for David Tennant to reach up and turn on a light. Yep. Yes. And then we get the gearing up scene because, like, Charlie tries to convince Peter to come with him. Peter won't. He won't do it. Yeah. But it is interesting right before that when you see him and he's getting ready to go, he's gone from his full costuming and that includes, like, the hair and the beard to then his private version of himself Mm -hmm. where he's just, like, out of all that and his short hair and makeup and leather pants. And then when you see him scared, when you see this core of him, he's in jeans and a track jacket and sneakers. Yep. Well, I think, like, even when, like, that first scene with Charlie where he, like, finishes his show and is stripping off and we get, like, the gag from taking off the beard and whatever, he remains part in costume because he's lying to Charlie and also to himself that he's a functional person. He's, like, yep. holding on to that bravado because if he doesn't, like you say, the core of him is just pure fear and how do you exist when the only emotion which is you that feel is dichotomy fear. with jerry because jerry feels pure hunger and hate yep. and they're both yeah. trying to continue holding up these affectations jerry so that he can be a predator but for peter it's so that he can continue to live a version of his life where he is not challenged mm-hmm. where he is not threatened and it is very interesting to see how he continues to hold that layer up in front of charlie yeah. until 
he's telling him like you just gotta go yeah. but he gives him the stake of saint michael a stake blessed by saint michael yes, a stake yeah blessed by saint so michael. he clearly still has his guilt over what's going on he's still very clearly conflicted especially now that he's made this connection to his history like this is the moment his yeah. wound opens up and he goes to get his vampire kit which is a great little scene that you were talking about. Yeah, when uh, when Charlie goes and gears up in the, the army surplus store. Yeah, yeah, and he's got his crossbow and the stuff to make his fire stuntman kit. Yeah, because um, Peter says, like, he's like, how, how am I going to get close enough to stake him through the heart with it? Well, you know, you could light him on fire. You know, yeah. a vampire who's on fire is a vampire who's not thinking. And he goes, oh, cool. So he's going to be on fire when I get right up next to him. Great. Mm-hmm. And that's when he gets the idea to do the stunt gear. I also just really love that when he's buying all of this gear and like the store worker is very clearly like, what, what the fuck are you doing, my guy? And he's like, oh, I'm hunting vampires. And this poor retail worker is just like, yeah, okay, do fine. You think you're funny. Great. Anyway, go on. I have another six hours in my shift and I want to leave. Like, <laughs> that's so Maybe real. my favorite part of the outfit is that it has a very high collar. Um, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah. that that's real deal vampire like defense here if you have the armored collar you know what you're doing that's right well it's funny too because that's such a that's such a trope sasquatch hunters and ghost hunters like you're going and getting all this stuff because you're gonna wage war on the supernatural i've watched buzzfeed unsolved i i've seen ryan Berg- ryan bergara with his little water gun full of holy water but yeah, he, and then, like, when he gets going in Jerry's house, he's pretty methodical about it. He immediately, first thing he does is break all the windows. Let's all the sunlight in. Yeah, and this is 12 hours after his house blew yep. up. Like, he pulls up in this destroyed Cadillac in front of his exploded house, less than 12 hours. There's no police tape anywhere. And then he goes right to his neighbors and starts breaking and windows. And also, like, some neighbors across the street see him roll <laughs> up in this gear, run in, and start breaking windows. Bold choice, sir. Yeah, he starts doing that, and then Peter shows up. Peter had a come to Jesus moment and decided like, fuck it. Like, you know, if I'm going to, yeah. I'd rather die doing this than keep living the life I have been. You know what? It's time for them both to be a man. Yeah. Right? It's a coming of age story. Yeah. And Peter is obviously the character who has been in arrested development for so long. And also like running from that development for so long because he's too afraid to face it. And it's interesting because where this one takes a more cis-hetero approach on things in a lot of ways. Like, it's in response to the original. So seeing the both of them kind of coming up and being like, we're going to go through the trials of man. And how are we going to do that? We're going to pull a fast one on a vampire. Um, I will say the nest, like the actual, like under, like a basement nest. So fucking, so cool. It's cool and also so creepy. Like the the walls filled with like writhing, burrowing vampires, like their little worms is so... Yeah, because when they get to the kill room, which is where Amy's supposed to be, she falls out and they follow her down. And so the entire lower half, like I guess the basement and any other like areas around there that were not in part of the main house are knocked away. He's built his foundation. And I cannot imagine like picking this up on the market after the movie. Why you got a, why you got a cave? Why there a cave under the house? I I also appreciate because like we we see the vampires all crawl out, um, and we see Amy has been uh-huh. switched to like a white virginal dress. It's um, yeah. very like Lucy Western recorded. Yep, she's very like kiss me Arthur. Mm-hmm. Like it's a whole it's a whole ref on like the seductress. Yeah, because Charlie goes to her. Jerry mm-hmm. reveals he's in the room with her. 
and like is just like mm-hmm. surprise she's already been turned i'm gonna leave you to it bye yeah. and like leaves and shuts the door behind him and amy is like full-on like breathy feral vampire. oh just like feeding yeah. him on like yeah. i can be your best i can be your only uh-huh. i can be your forever As she's like straddling him uh-huh. yeah it's so funny because, like, I think vampires are deeply unsexy in this movie. Not sexy in this movie. Even, like, Colin Farrell, who people thirst after Colin Farrell, hardcore. Pictures of him, like, jogging with his hair in a bit have, like, people on Twitter losing their fucking minds. He's so unsexy in this movie. He's gross. And, like, I think Imogen Poots is, like, this is the one time that a vampire actually looks, like, attractive. Uh Uh-huh. And it's entirely because it's a honeypot for Charlie. That's the only reason. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at this whole thing as Jerry playing this game with Charlie, because he's gotten bored, Mm -hmm. he still needs to hunt and feed and replenish his ranks, but he sees very early on that he gets it, Mm -hmm. and he knows how to, like, have that back and forth. So if you look at this as all a game against Charlie, then what better way than to bring him into the fold to bring Peter into the fold? So you get to tease him and set him up with, like you said, the honeypot, yep. the bait of this seemingly heterosexual mm-hmm. ritual. You know, these puberty yep. rituals of like giving in a little bit, being a little bit bad. Yeah. And then he penetrates her in a very different way. With the yep. stake to... Just stop her for a while. Yeah, doesn't kill her. Yeah, doesn't kill her, not through the heart, but mm-hmm. does cause damage. Escapes from the room, and they get the showdown with his herd of, like, his, his not even herd, like, his, like, family, family pack. Get to found mm-hmm. Yeah, they, he straight up says, like, they're pack hunters. And they come crawling out of the floor and the walls, and they're all grimy and gross. Dave Franco is there. <laughs> Something's very funny about it. All, all these vampires crawl out of the floor. They're gross. Dave Franco is also there. <laughs> and I imagine they, Adam's they never... there because Adam was yeah. killed in the original opening. So I think he is. I just didn't notice. They never mention him, but I assume so. And then they managed to buy themselves like a little bit of space by um, shooting holes with the shotgun that Peter brought. Uh, holes in the ceiling so that sunlight comes through to let the yeah. sunlight in, right? And yeah. you get Colin Farrell monologue. He loves. He loves that he it's loves like d- it's being drawn out. Like he's like, cool, great, yeah, we can wait. The sun yeah. is gonna go down, and then you're fucked. Like, <laughs> but talking about putting bed, yeah, uh, four hundred years of survival and how they can wait it out, and even doing a little bit of a play on old mm-hmm. Bram Stoker's Dracula, nineteen ninety two, by thanking Charlie for bringing yep. Amy to him because. He feels young again. It's grim. And like Amy, Amy's like coming out of the room and like draped over him. Yeah. yeah. Possessed, haunted. Yeah, she doll like does style. like a little dance, doesn't she? Like she prances. It's like I don't particularly go to bat for a 1992's Dracula and Mina, but at least Gary Oldman could carry it off with some charisma and some panache. He didn't seem like he was a high school gym oh. teacher. Who's yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's, that's the vibe. That's the vibe. It's yeah. It's interesting though. So like because she has mm. been wounded by the stake, he cuts himself so she can heal up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And that's when like you know Peter and Charlie are like, "Well, we're kind of fucked." And Peter goes to like light a cigarette and Charlie starts pulling up the hood he has for the flame and like Peter realizes uh-huh. what's it's going like on. The glasses and the And mask. he's like, "Oh, you're going to need a distraction cuz like all the otherwise all the vampires will jump yeah. in before he can get to Jerry." So 
Peter uses the lighter, but then runs out of the light and immediately yeah. gets swarmed by the vampires. Sure gets a lot of fucks off, though. Which is why, like, yeah, this movie seems like the studio exec could have been like, we can do this PG-13, right? <laughs> they were like, no. No, you can't. Just have David Tennant I'm... say fuck like eight times in one scene so we guarantee we don't get a PG-13. You know what? Let David Tennant say fuck more often. The man deserves it. He's a Scot. Happy to oblige. David Tennant should have said fuck in Doctor Who. I think it would have been funny. Like, as <laughs> as the 10th Doctor Who generating, it's just David Tennant going, I don't want to fucking go. David Tennant should have said fuck in Doctor Who. But, uh, but then Charlie lights himself on fire and manages to get jerry the bit where jerry is like in the process of being staked and goes full feral animal is so fucked up like it's yeah. deeply creepy it's incredibly yeah. fucked up i love it's it the kind of fucked up too that comes from those early stages of modern cgi and animation yep where they're yeah. hitting the uncanny valley to try to figure out where they can play with and it wasn't here but it works I love that Charlie used a carabiner to yep. latch himself onto Jerry's jeans. <laughs> Appropriating lesbian culture. And then Peter throws the stake yep. and they get him through the heart. And the interesting part about vampires in Fright Night is this possession. Because as soon as that mm -hmm. happens, all of the victims that were alive start writhing and this black smoke spills out. And even Amy says yeah. when she's seducing Charlie, yep. he's inside me now. Which take that how you like, I suppose. They also specify a normal stake wouldn't have done that. It was specifically the stake of St. Michael that allowed for all of the victims of Jerry to be cleansed. Which, I mean, if you're going to have one of those, I'm happy with it. Yeah. It's a horror comedy. Um, I, I do wonder, like, does Jerry have offspring throughout the world that's suddenly like, oops. I honestly would assume so. Yeah. But yeah, and then we get the genuinely kind of funny ending of Charlie and Amy going to fuck in Peter's like penthouse and Peter walking in on them. <laughs> Peter walking in on them and like, like being like, you know, don't stop on my account unless you want me to join in or anything. Like, and I'm like, okay, Peter, fucking tone it down. One of the least straight things he says is like, don't do anything I would yeah. do. Which isn't much. And I really thought, because, like, you know, you always get the surprise, like, last scare. Like, you know, and I thought we were going to have a Jerry's still around or, like, Ed didn't. Ed somehow came back or something. But no, it's just them fucking and, like, that's the end of the movie. <laughs> Good for them. That's just nice. But that is the Fright Night remake. So much more fun than I really remembered it being. Because yeah. it didn't do super, super no, well at the box it, office. It, it was not a particular success. It wasn't, like... A flop yeah. is the thing, is that like it made its budget back. It's just that that was at a time, too, when... 2011 was the rise of Marvel. Like, the next year would be the Avengers, and then it's all over from <laughs> Jesus. there. Oh, yeah. God. I, <sighs> it's hurt so much. <laughs> We've made our piece of... Like, because I used to be... I own everything except for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I own every MCU thing from Iron Man up I think I also game. do. I was like, I want to, like, no, I want this. And now I'm just like, I'll see them if they look good. Like, if they look right, neat, I'll watch them. I like, like, I, Guardians 3 was fantastic. I really liked Guardians nice. 3. That was a great movie. But yeah, that's Fright Night, baby. That Fright Night. Beautiful. I feel like that's a good time to talk a little bit about what you love about it and kind of get around some of the parts we haven't talked about. Yeah. And, you know, we will talk about 1985 at some point. Yeah. But I really enjoy the Craig Gillespie remake. Mm -hmm. 
it's a strange one. I'm going to be real with you. It's a pretty strange one in terms of like looking into the text itself yeah. and what it's doing <laughs> and how it's doing it. So what are things that you want to get out there in regards to like your relationship I, with it? It's just, I think, a really interesting and specific look at a singular period in time for like, you know, American culture, America, but like speaking as someone who was not too dissimilar from Charlie back in the day. I think for all of the like goofy comedy horror bits, which are, I think there's a lot of genuinely very funny moments in this movie. Like it's a well-made movie. I think this movie has a lot more to say and a lot of specificity with its messaging that it doesn't get credit for because it is like, you know, oh, it's a remake. Oh, like, you know, it's, it was shot in 3D. Oh, it didn't make a ton of money. Like, I, I think it gets slept on when it's surprisingly smart and warts and all is an extremely accurate depiction of 2010, 2011 American culture and portrays it through a lens using vampires that is like, oh, this is a horrifying look at it. Mm. And the relationship it has to that time, I think, is really salient yeah. because, you know, there's all this repressed homosexuality yeah. at that time. You know, you hear people say, you know, oh, well, no one came out in my high school in the early 2000s. Like, yeah, man, we watched you beat the shit out of somebody and make somebody else's life living hell. Mm -hmm. And then a decade later, another dozen people came out yep. from yep. that yep. class. There's this air of the pecking order of high school yep. that you see someone like Charlie who clearly has had a journey to get to be who he is, mm -hmm. yeah. whoever that will be. And he is not as comfortable with it because in that social construct, you're not allowed to be outside of the lines. So to have him in that situation and then have Jerry preying on what are a lot of local kids gets Amy gets Ed gets Mark Adam. and gets Adam yeah. Mark's friend. And you can even look at somebody like Mark as being the ultimate version of an overcompensating front, pointing out Charlie's insecurities rather than his own as a shield. I think that's very much to that period of time. But, you know, it's it's nice to see a horror of a time and of a place. And setting it in Las Vegas is so cool. It's also like, there's a lot of period horror that people love, but I think this one gets overlooked because it wasn't period when it was made. It's of the era extremely of the era it was timely in a way that is shocking now so people don't think of it from that lens where i think now it should be approached as a period piece because it is extremely singularly of that moment and nothing else yeah so we do have a question for this episode Ooh. so i think maybe you want to roll into questions now this one is from emily I want to send a thank you to emily uh, so Emily writes, hello, pod and special podcast guest Zoe. I have been patiently waiting for the podcast to drop and I know y'all will kill it. Got a gush to Zoe for a bit since I am a huge Blade Maidens fan. I love your work with Valentine and the comic fills that empty hole in my transbian heart, Bladen for life. Hey. Outside of being hey. a fan of both the original Fright Night and its remake, I'm an even bigger fan of Toni Collette. Real. She has made a splash in the horror genre playing mom characters in films like The Sixth Sense, Krampus, Fright Night, and Hereditary. But why do you think she's become a beloved actress in the genre and excelling with playing those roles and how would you rank her horror mom characters congrats on the new pod thanks emily 
um first before anything else uh thank you so much emily that those what kind words i truly appreciate it um that made, made me a little emotional thank you oh. um second i fucking love krampus krampus is so good <laughs> i also love krampus it's good i also just love tony collette i think a lot of why she is so good in this genre for me anyway is how much she commits body and soul to her role right you can see her in different films and i feel like her whole physicality changes in a way that is so so special to me yes like Mm -hmm. the wound sort of tight frenetic energy and hereditary to and not really a horror film unless you count capitalism as horror which we all should the sort of granola influencer of knives out so funny to me putting Uh, those films back to back those are different women she's really good at embodying the energy and like gauging the energy of the cast and role she's in absolutely and i think so much of horror is about being able to play off that energy and to immerse yourself in it so that it's always believable and she's just great at it. Ugh, I love Toni Collette. I, I think one of the reasons she's also, like, you know, in specifically horror is the mom character is so vital to so many horror narratives. Mm-hmm. It can cover such a different range that having her, like, the thing is, she's been playing the mom character for over a decade. Well, 1996 like, was the sixth sense, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, well over a decade, like, fucking, like, 25 years and she she the she keeps doing it because she's so good yeah tony collette has been playing a mother for longer than i have been alive Ugh, why do you say these things that make me hurt i love it i love it My, darling i love you so much you make me feel like i'm withering into dust well <laughs> that's the whole thing you know sometimes you just gotta weather. Sometimes you just gotta weather. I love the way that she handles those energy levels because you look at her in the sixth sense, which is so weird to see yeah. her that young. Mm-hmm. And it's a more reserved performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you look at something like Mrs. Brewster, which I think she's fucking great she's as Mrs. So Brewster. Good. Oh, she's so good. She's a little bit fun. She's a little bit nosy, but she's mm-hmm. not afraid to take the gloves off. And at the start of the film, she's a little bit flirty. She's having fun. Like, she's great. Yeah, she flirts right? with Jerry a little bit. Yeah. But then shuts him down because she says, a man that old and a single, I know he's a player. <laughs> I have enough man problems in my life. I don't need that. Yep. And good for yep. her. Yeah, good for Mrs. Brewster. She got her neighborhood monster free also it is very funny that uh well not very funny it's just like a weird like oh that happened that like within like what two years of each other uh anton yelkin played charlie brewster and charlie bartlett yeah my man had a charlie niche (laughs) yeah and i think she's incredible in hereditary obviously like we all know that she really committed to that movie I have not watched Hereditary, and I will Don't, not watch Hereditary. It's, it's not for you. I love you so much. It's not for you. <laughs> I, know, I know. Oh, I know it's not for me. It's the same way Satan's not for you, and that's okay. And then she was in, I'm thinking of ending things for Netflix. She's Jesse Plemons' mother, which is very funny. It's so funny that, like, she plays mom to such a wide variety of, like, ages of actors. Yes. Like... Tony Collette is the er mother. Like she, she can. It doesn't matter um, how old you are. Tony Collette can be your mom. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Gay people are gonna eat up the sentence Tony Collette is the her mother. That's great. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I love about that too is she gets to go into these roles and say, Who are these women? What's gonna make this role rewarding to me? And she does something a little different every time with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I think she plays the spectrum of what motherhood can be to such a an interesting and nuanced degree that and oftentimes you know hollywood women of a certain age can be pigeonholed into playing like mother roles but it never really feels like that for me maybe she would feel differently i don't know but she always approaches these characters with such like a fully realized picture of who all these women are and i think that's really fun to see she does great at it yeah thanks emily i hope that answered your question so do you have any final thoughts on Bright Night, your relationship with it, or what it brings to mind and, and to your heart? I hope Peter Vincent is drinking better things than Maduri straight out of the bottle. I hope he's grown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope Peter Vincent um, has a lovely little like cottage um, out in the countryside with his husband, and they're very happy together. And that he keeps the leather pants but just for fun right so his his husband is michael sheen and is just good omens it's just good omens again yeah yeah Yeah. that's the best sequel (laughs) yeah yeah does anyone know exactly what accent he's using in this movie i don't think david tennant knows what accent he's using in this movie (laughs) and i respect that even now right this is this is a thing about david tennant zoe knows this i've had this run um david tennant has been out of Scotland for so long, like in London, in the States doing things, etc. That now his actual like Scottish accent is diminished, which he didn't have a particularly strong one before. He's from Bathgate. It was a pretty chilled accent. But now he had to do a Scottish accent in Legend of Vox Machina, wasn't it? We were watching Yeah, that? you were so mad. You were so angry about that. And I was so mad at him. I was so mad at him because I was like, David Tennant, you're from Bathgate. Why are you putting on a Scottish accent? Stop this. Like, this it was like watching you me. watch Drew McIntyre talk. You got so angry. All of this to say, David Tennant's accent is a little bit of a mess at all times. And I just really respect it. I love when Celtic actors and actresses in particular can't hide their accent and so it always bleeds a little. I think especially into American because it is such like a, the American accent that's taught is such like a standard flat one that there's always going to be a little bit of accent bleed. But once that starts, it's very hard to stop. And I think it's very funny to know. I love listening to people do American accents, (laughs) like the American accent, because he had been using more of an English accent on Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And then he comes to do this one in an American setting. And you can tell that he does push a bit of an American accent at some point. Yeah. And then after this, he obviously goes on to do Jessica Jones and is doing ostensibly an American ostensibly. accent. Ostensibly. But ostensibly. Uh, but even in that, when he's shouting for Jessica, he does the, the Scottish vowel yeah. on Jessica. He like drops it rather than it being an American one. And I love it. It makes me happy. I'm like, yes, infect it. One of my favorites um, in the, like, ooh, you can't hide this accent at all genre is I recently watched Silo, um, which (laughs) is great. Highly, highly (laughs) recommend that show. Fucking adored it. Um, But Rebecca Ferguson is the main character of that show. And almost every Rebecca Ferguson role I've seen, she puts on a British accent. And she's, she's quite good at it. 
did not realize she is not British. She's, um, That's yeah, not. she's from, I forget which, like, Scandinavian country, but she's Scandinavian. She's Swedish. Swedish, yeah. And she, I don't know if they were just like, fuck it, we don't care, but she has this weird hybrid of English-Scandinavian accent in this one, where it's just like, and everyone else in the silo has an American accent. Every single, except for, <laughs> except for her father, who is played by, oh, I forget his name, um, the guy what played Mormont in Game of Thrones and plays Bruce Wayne in Titan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he's her dad, and he also is, like, barely hiding his accent. So it's just, like, this one weird little family that talks different than everyone else in this, like, nuclear silo. It's so fun. My favorite candidate for actress who can't hide their own accent worth a damn. She is the love of my life. Always will be. Oh, boy. Miss Katie McGrath. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Katie McGrath is Irish. You can cast her in any role you like. You can make her any nationality you like. That character is going to be Irish. Good for her. Good for her. They had to retroactively say that Lena Luther was adopted from an Irish family in Supergirl because she just couldn't hold the American accent long enough. And then they had two Irish people in the cast and they were like, we can only cast one of you if you're going to keep the accent. So either one of you has to learn the accent or one of you can't get cast. So Colin Morgan was like, I'll be English. Oh, wow. <laughs> and just let her be Irish. I'm going to share a fun little insight to your listeners. One of the earliest, aha, yeah, Bex knows what I'm about to say. One of the earliest uh, things that I was informed about Bex when we started dating, Bex told me that they know the exact date and time that they realized she's gay because there's a there's a specific scene in the premiere of bbc's merlin where katie mcgraw is like lounging in like a green dress like in a window and it's a blue dress blue dress my mistake and that's the person like the gay lever went shook in their brain yeah for everyone at home, that was September 20th, 2008, at three minutes past seven in the evening, British Standard Time. This is, you let me on the podcast, <laughs> this is what happens. Well, when Kay McGrath's in a horror movie that's better than the one she was in in 2008, we will circle back. <laughs> or we'll just do NBC Dracula. Always one more Dracula. Always one more Dracula. So, in the next couple episodes, we are going to be doing Alien, 1979, with Taryn Freeman. The Shining with Tucker Lieberman from 1980. Titan, Brant Lewis from 2021. And we are going to be taking on 1992 Scream with our friend Karen Charm. That that Scream episode is going to be killer. You, you yeah. both nailed the perfect guest for that episode. Karen is going to crush it. I feel like that Scream episode yeah. is going to be quite Oh, it thorough. is. It's going I do love Scream. So you stay tuned for that. Is there anywhere that you want to tell people to check out your work or to keep an eye on what's coming? Well, for me, there's bladebanes.com. We update every Thursday. All of Bladebanes will always be free to read on our website, so feel free to get caught up or read. I also will... At some point in this year, it will be announced, so I can actually talk about it in specifics, but you will be able to read an IDW comic book written by me at some point in the future. Very excited about this. Beyond that, <laughs> I'm technically still on Twitter, at Blankzilla, but not really. Sorry, I'm on X. 
and uh, but also I'm on Blue Sky I'm at Zoe with a sword, and that's where I'm mostly hanging out nowadays. So if you're in Blue Sky, the vibes are much more pleasant there. There's still the internet. A little bit better. Oh, yeah. It's got some growing yeah. pains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can find us still on the curse site at Out to Get You Pod. Same thing for Instagram, where we will be posting updated show notes and releases. You can find me on Blue Sky as well, and pretty much everywhere at Pearl Snaps, some version. I am one on Blue Sky. I am just, I am just Phoenix. Yeah, you did on it. Blue Sky. So come and find me. Um, Jean Grey can <laughs> take it out of my cold dead hands. And she might. Uh, <laughs> and she might. You but, win you know, way. Good for her. And um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Rebecca7, all of the vibes, just how it goes. We're simply abandoning the cursed site. It is what it is. But until then, listeners, we'll see you before you see us.